in connection with preparatory. We turn this evening to the gospel as recorded by Luke. And our text is found in Luke chapter 15. Our text is going to run, of course, from verses 11 and following, though not the whole of the parable. I'm not going to focus so much on that elder son. That's worth, really in itself, a whole separate sermon, though things must be said about that elder son, of, that elder son, of course, in contrast with the younger and the prodigal. Nonetheless, running from verses 11, really, through 24, though even there the focus is going to be on the prodigal. But we begin to read first the first few verses of, chap- of chapter 15. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake these parables unto them. And now you go to verse 11. And he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me, and he divided unto them his living. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. When he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine, And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am nor worthy to be called Thy son, make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. When he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. And the father said to his servant, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out, and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, 
these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, who hath devoured thy living with harlots, and thou hast killed for him the fatted calf, and he said to him, Son, thou art ever with me. All that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Our text consists, of course, we have said of verses 11 and uh, going through 24, but especially as it pertains just to the son and his repentance. This is, of course, a well-known and well-beloved parable. One of the ones that is I think most delightful to the hearts of God's people. And undoubtedly that has much to do with the mercy that is shown by the father of this parable. And to be sure, this parable does set forth the great mercy of the father as representative that of God himself. But of course it doesn't only set forth the mercy of, of God and the love for his own. This is a parable that underscores what we call the sinfulness of sin with its consequences, the sin of foolishness of this prodigal and how he was deceived in the end by the way of sin. And he was deceived by what it promised because of course it promised a way of joy and delight. But in the end what this prodigal found that he was walking in the way of death and of emptiness and of poverty extreme. And yet, this is one who for all his folly and his sin was forgiven. And so it's a parable, of course, that gives hope to the greatest of sinners and brings that home as this prodigal for all the magnitude of his sin finds himself in the end in the embrace of his father. But let's understand something beloved that he found the embrace of his father in the way of repentance. Not apart from repentance in the way of 
repentance. And that, of course, is important, time of self-examination, as we contemplate coming to the table of the Lord and sitting, as it were, not only with fellow saints at the table, but with God himself, represented by Christ, of course, but with the Father, represented by Christ. And how will he receive us? He receives, of course, those who come in the way of repentance and confession and are pleading for his mercy. And we must understand why we must be numbered with those who plead for his mercy and the importance of repentance that is sincere and true as this is described in the parable. And then as we line up with scripture and learn the way of the scripture, we may come with the confidence to receive, to be blessed and to partake one with another. With that in mind, we consider this parable under the theme, the prodigal son. I suppose I could have said the parable of the prodigal son, but we're just focusing on one aspect of the parable and not the whole of it, of course. And we're focusing especially upon the prodigal son and then as he is received of the, of the father. We must see in the first place that this prodigal was guilty of grievous sin. And what constitutes that grievous sin? That he was one who fell for sin's deception. This parable sets forth before us sin's deception for our instruction. And finally, turning at last, turning at last from something, but turning towards someone. That's also, of course, in this parable. So the parable, as we call it the prodigal son, and then going, first of all, as it lays plain, is grievous sin. The parable begins with the words, a certain man had two sons. And that immediately places before us the occasion for the parable because Christ speaks this parable in the audience of two groups of people. The publicans and sinners that we read in verse 1 of chapter 5 and the Pharisees and the scribes as well. The one, of course, represented by the younger brother, the publicans and sinners, and the other, the Pharisees and scribes, represented by the elder brother. And that one group comes to him, of course, as it is aware of its need. Publicans and sinners come to Christ conscious of their need and as sinners who have the guilt of sin weighing on them. The other group represented by the elder brother, these scribes and Pharisees, come also, but they come as those who are aloof, if you will, and judgmental to the 
extreme. They are outwardly obedient, of course, these scribes and Pharisees, but they are devoid of one spiritual ingredient. And that spiritual ingredient is love. And what is love? Love is consideration for others, for their well-being, and true love, of course, for their spiritual well-being. It ought to reflect that of God himself, who in his love has a thought for our well-being, our spiritual well-being. Now, beloved, our love may be parable. It's not the same as because only God's love can save. But, nonetheless, God may also use our love in the salvation of others. But of that love, you see, the scribes and Pharisees were destitute. They had no use for sinners who were guilty of great sins. As long as, as far as they were concerned, they all might just as well perish, devoid of love and consideration for others. And don't forget, they're all members of the Old Testament church. Their attitude, of course, their judgmental attitude towards the publicans and sinners, as well as towards Christ, is reflected in that phrase when they saw Christ, who allowed the publicans and sinners to draw near to him, say, This man receiveth sinners, and eateth with them. The publicans and sinners themselves disgusted them, but now Jesus himself, that he would receive them, and speak to them, and associate with them, disgusted them as well. And as far as they were concerned, that he did this, proved, demonstrated he could not be the Messiah because he could not possibly, they said, be a reflection of, of God, the righteous God. Certainly God would have no approval for the publicans and sinners, and certainly God could have no love for the publicans and sinners, and that this Christ Jesus was willing to receive them and to associate them and even eat with them simply meant that it couldn't be any kind of reflection of Jehovah God and the heart of Jehovah God. He couldn't be the representative of God and be the Christ, the Messiah. Christ in this parable, of course, is making plain just how wrong and mistaken they were how ignorant they were of the heart of God as a father toward sinners, even toward great sinners whom he may and does love. God's heart, of course, is reflected by that father of the parable who was a man who had great compassion, and when the prodigal returned to him, his prodigal son received him with a gladness. And Christ is saying, as surely as that is true of his father, it's true of God, and as, tr as surely as it's true of God, it's true of me, and that I also 
have this love for sinners and will receive them as they come to me with the weight of guilt upon them. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah after all. So Christ speaks here of two sons. The younger, who becomes the prodigal, representing the publicans and the sinners, and the elder, who represents in the end the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees. And, of course, there's a certain way in which they are to be classified together, don't forget. They're all of Jewish extraction. They all have fought Abraham for their father. They all are those who went to the temple. They all were in the sphere of the covenant, if you will, according to to birth. They all had certain privileges. They heard the word of God and of the of the law, and even had things administered to them. So they have so much in common with respect to their lineage and to their privileges. They are of one blood. But for all that, beloved, they are two distinct groups because the scribes and Pharisees were devoid of something. And what they were devoid, of course, was grace and the work of grace. But the evidence of that is the absence of love. Self-denying love and a desire for the well-being, the spiritual well-being of others. And so this parable. That said, let's understand, however much this parable stands as a testimony against the self-righteous attitude of the scribes and Pharisees, let's understand that this parable begins by making plain the sin of the prodigal, representing, you understand, the publicans and sinners. Christ does not minimize in any way that sins of the prodigal and his wayward worldly wanderings. He does not minimize his sin in any way. He underscores it in the parable as we must see. We have to understand, beloved, that it's not simply what you're hearing so much of today in, in, in Christendom as if really the only great sin is hypocrisy and being of a certain judgmental spirit. And as long as I'm not hypocritical and as long as I don't have a judgmental spirit and don't have a self-righteousness, I pretty much may live as I please. It's just hypocrisy and a judgmental spirit that is displeasing to God. Not all these other things that people want to call sin, sexual promiscuity and on and on. Nothing, beloved, could be further from the truth. Christ does not minimize the sin of the prodigal. All sin is serious and is grievous, and not simply this matter of a self-righteous spirit and of being judgmental of others. And so 
though Christ does condemn, you understand, the sins of the Pharisees and the scribes, he's not justifying the sins of the publicans and sinners with whom he eats. In fact, he tells this parable to lay before them also their sin, to call them, you see, to repentance and making plain to them the deceitfulness of sin itself. And that's underscored, of course, by the parable, because when the prodigal comes to his senses, what does he say to his father? I am no more worthy to be called thy son. And he hits the nail on the head. That's exactly the truth. Based on his behavior and conduct and what he did out in the world in that far country and how he treated his father himself, he was no more worthy to be called the father's son. He had forfeited every right because of his sins. And what this parable does and Christ does in this parable is to lay the full responsibility of that sin and his sin upon the prodigal and not to excuse him in any fashion as somehow to make it seem as though, well, you know, he had a rather terrible upbringing and now you can blame your, your family and your, and your upbringing. Nothing of the, of the sort. You read the parable and his father was above reproach. He had given his sons every, every consideration. His possessions that he had were given to his, his sons. He was raised well to do. He was generous. That's evident even how he treats his own servants, as the prodigal remembered later. They have food enough and to, to spare. They even have excess. That's how it is in my father's house. And if he, and if he treated his children that way, certainly uh, his servants that way, he certainly didn't treat his sons any, any differently. He treated them with a generosity. All that I have is yours, and all that I have I use and for your well-being and your sustenance and for your preservation as well. So a father who is what you call God-fearing and upright and good, even as we may say, you know, God is good to all. That's different than saying having a common grace to all. But God has given to every man everything that he has. It's not his own life and breath and possessions. If he has them, God has given them to him. And God is, from that point of view, his God who has made him and every man is under the rule and authority of God whether he will acknowledge that or not. So you see this father and yet though the son had that kind of a father and knew his father to be that sort he turns his back on his father he says no to his father. He repays his father's kindness and, and goodness by saying to the father, divide with me my, your living. I want my living now, your, my inheritance now. I'm not going to wait. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, I suppose you might as well have dead. Why, why are you waiting so long to die? If you would just simply pass away, I could have it right now. But if you're not going to pass away in time, well, give it to me now. And so, of course, he sins, just as all sin is, as this man sins against the 
against his father, of course. We're talking about sins against whom this father represents, which has to do with God. And it's not because of God's character that we sin. We repay God for what he has given us by taking what he has and living it, serving it, using it, if you will, to serve our own appetites and our own desires. We are guilty of what is called rebellion. Certainly that's true of this, this father. There's a reason, you know, why he wanted to leave his father's home. Why? He has everything, you might say, that is in the home. He has, he has eat food and drink and warmth and shelter. Why want the living from his father and, and go away? Well, there's sinful reasons, of course. He doesn't want the authority of his father. He doesn't want his father ruling him. He doesn't want to have to live according to his father's word. And so there is this matter of rebellion. And so he demands his father's living and the inheritance now so that he can take it and spend it as he pleases, as he chooses, and be free from his father's Rule, you see, there is this matter of rebellion against authority and the turning his back even on the friendship of his father. This is not only a father, you understand, but this is a man who is a friend. It goes right back, does it not, to paradise? Isn't the great sin of paradise, Adam and Eve? This young man here reflects his first parents, our first parents, as we can oftentimes reflect our first parents. What is there about sin that attracts us. But when it does attract us, just like Adam and Eve, it's taking a piece of something that is forbidden that we know that is forbidden us, according to the word of God, and we want that which is forbidden, and we weigh it against the friendship of God. Friend of God, or this forbidden thing that can satisfy my appetite right now, what shall I have? And even the love that we have to think about it indicates something of the sin of our nature. We're going to weigh something that is forbidden that can give us a temporary satisfaction against the friendship of God and decide, I think I'll take the fruit. I think I'll take that which satisfies my carnal appetite and forget about the friendship of God as though the friendship of God is not even worth, you see, that piece of forbidden Fruit. That was the sin, of course, of Adam and Eve. They did not want to be governed by the word of God. Isn't that the essence of sin? What are we told? Good and evil? I will determine for myself what is good and what is evil. I don't care that the word of God says this is evil. For me, I think it's good. I think it's pleasant. It will satisfy my appetite. I want it now, I will determine for myself what's good and what's evil. What's good for me? Why should God determine for me what's good? Who does he think he is? God? That's exactly who he is, isn't he? But we don't want to recognize him as God, having the right to tell us what's good for us and what's evil, and we better stay away from. Oh, I think it's good. He will be, as it were, God himself and deny his authority and his right to determine for us what's good and evil. The seriousness, beloved, of sin, of that 
rebellion. And so it was, you understand, with this prodigal as he turns his back upon his father and his home and demands the living and be away from the restrictions of the father's home and determine for himself how he wants to live. And I will satisfy myself whether it displeases my father or not. The seriousness, beloved, of sin, not only of the prodigal sin, but of our sin as well when we simply walk contrary to what God requires us. I will determine for myself what is good for me. Who is God that he should determine this for me? Of what then are we worthy? Sonship? Isn't it forfeited even by the sin as such? Certainly has the weight of forfeiting even our sonship and the right to anything that belongs to the house of God. So Christ brings this home in this parable as the scribes, as the publicans and sinners are listening as they themselves, as publicans and sinners, have made choices for for sins. Christ isn't just brushing their sins under the, the rug. They're publicans and sinners, but you know, at least they're not self-righteous, so we'll just have association with publicans and sinners as though I now approve of their lifestyle. Nothing of the sort. Not approving of their lifestyle. He's using this as an occasion to address them in their lifestyle, in their choices, to bring them to their senses and showing them not only the seriousness of sin as it's displeasing to God as Father, but the foolishness of sin as well, as in the end it deceives a man. That also, you see, comes home in this parable, doesn't it? Because in this parable, Christ lays before the groups the consequence of pursuing a self serving, self-satisfying life. This prodigal, having made his choice to turn his back on his father's home and his own upbringing and to pursue his own sinful way, experiences the horror of sin in the end and rebellion that goes unconfessed, unrepented because this prodigal goes into the far country and turns his back on his father's house and then tastes of all the pleasures of the world. And what does he find in the end, beloved? He finds emptiness, doesn't he? He finds despair. The way that he's walking at this time is what we call the broad way. You know Christ's Sermon on the Mount and he speaks of the straight and narrow way, which is the way of God's word and his precepts over against the broad way. And what's the description of that broad way? The broad way that leadeth to destruction. That's the end of the way. But that's not how it begins. It doesn't begin with destruction. It begins, you know, with seeming pleasure, with seeming joy, with seeming satisfaction. That's exactly its deceitfulness. This 
young men were told, went out into this far country and he took his father's possessions as part of the sin as well, you know. He had no right to these possessions in himself at this time. His father was still living, so he takes his father's possessions and he wasted his substance in riotous living. Notice, wasted his substance. Took what he had and spent in a prodigious way in finding every pleasure that he could to satisfy every appetite he, he spent. But he's not called a prodigal. What's the meaning of the word prodigal? Why is he named the prodigal son? Prodigal doesn't mean returning, beloved. The prodigal does return. But that's not what prodigal means. Prodigal means waster, spender, one who squanders and does so in a prodigious way. Takes what he has and sees how he can satisfy this lust and that lust in every way that he can. But having wasted his living, really his father's possessions, what he gave to him in a prodigious way, he ends up, I suppose you could call it a pigsty. We may call it out in the, out in the field, but he ends up living with the, with the pigs. And whatever he has to eat, it's not even enough because he has to go snuffling with the pigs through the husks that are being tossed to them and try to find a little food from those husks. And even that, in the end, of course, does not satisfy, and he ends up destitute and in despair, if you will. That's how it ends. But you understand, beloved, that's not how it started. It started, as we read here, with riotous living. Riotous living. What does the word riotous mean? We Young people use it sometimes, don't they? And they're not talking about chaos in the city streets. They're talking about what fun. We had a riot. We had a good time. My, was that pleasurable. I can't wait if we have opportunity to do it again. Riotish, you see. Uh, pleasure. And without restraint and without restriction, isn't this enjoyable? And, mind you, supposedly this is forbidden. What does my father know about what's good and what's enjoyable and what has pleasure? So, you see, this young man begins on this broad way. He starts out with pleasure, enjoyment, his appetites being fed and all the itches, as you were, being scratched. That's how it began. It's not how it ends, does it? It ends, as we're told, being in want. In other words, being destitute and having nothing at all. And that's, you understand, the trouble with sin. Sin begins as a kind of mistress that you think will satisfy you but it's a mistress that's never itself satisfied. More, more, more. And the appetite responds to that more, more, more. In the end, beloved, it's not one's mistress. It becomes one's master. It takes over one's life. And until you satisfy me, you're not going to be happy. And if it's never satisfied, one is never really happy. And one needs more 
and more and more until that sin, as it were, has one by the throat and will direct one's life. And now your life will revolve about that which has taken mastery and it will drain one dry, if you will. It will waste one. One begins consuming, you know. I am a consumer. And what does sin do in the end? It consumes you. Ask the alcoholic. Began with pleasure and the inebriation and the joy of the drink. And let's have another and another and another. And pretty soon it doesn't satisfy this. I need more and more. And there's a craving. And the craving becomes the master, doesn't it? until one is wasted. The power of sin and the deceitfulness of sin. The end of the road. Doesn't mean, I suppose, that everyone who lives in sin will know that same overpowering and in the end that great emptiness. There are those who live in sin who find a certain satisfaction although it never satisfies ultimately, as we must see, but at the end of the road, when one must leave all one's substance behind, beloved, there will be an emptiness, will there not? Because one can take nothing of these things with one, and one faces, as you understand, death. And so in the end, it has mastered and one must serve the fullness of the consequence. We read here that having begun this way of pleasure and this sin as it deceives him and takes hold of him and he wastes his living, spending all, he begins to be in want. He begins to be empty and he begins to be Alone, he began with friends. You may be sure they attracted friends who didn't want to help him spend his, his living. You want to buy the stuff for the house. We're here to share what you're buying for the house. You want to take us here to this place of pleasure. You pay the bill. We're right with you. One has money and one has these friends. But how true were these friends when all was said and done, they helped him spend what he had, but when finally he had spent all that he had, and now he had to turn to them, suddenly we read that no man gave to him. The friends of the world. They're fine, you know, as long as you're scratching their back and you can give them things. But when one becomes destitute and in need, suddenly it's difficult to find those friends. They, they leave one and one becomes empty, you see. And so he has to turn himself to the citizen of the land. This citizen of the land, of course, is in contrast to his father. He lived in his father's house and he lived with all that he had need of, answered to all of his needs, even with a, with a happiness from a certain point of view, except he didn't want to find happiness under the rule of his father. But now you have this citizen. And the citizens, yes, says, I can use you. I have 
hogs, I have swine. They need to be fed, and I'll have you take the slop to them and, and feed them. They didn't have hog confinements, of course, back then, rather out in the pasture and so on. Out in the, they had to bring them food, and it came from the, from the table and so on. And uh, evidently, the man did not give him much because he said, I, you, you're, you're, you're desperate, this is your wage. You may eat what I give to the pigs. I'll let you have food, but here it is, and you snuffle along with the, with the pigs, and you can eat what they eat. In some ways, you see, the man, and this man is thinking, my father's servants live better than I am at this, at this point. But such he is, as such, he is treated by the, the citizen, and there is none who will answer to his need. He is left alone, the friendships of the world. They're friends, you know, as long as you walk with them in riotous living, in sin. But suddenly, if you're not going to join them in sin anymore and enjoy the sin, uh, they're not really their sort anymore. They leave you to yourself and you end up alone. The consequence of sin and folly when all is said and done. I'm corresponding with a prisoner in California. Learned of him through congregation, the uh, committee in, in Redlands that has contact with, with prisoners, and he heard one of my sermons or so, and he contacted me, and there he is in the prison in California. And in the correspondence, haven't learned all the exact details of his sin, but it was sin in kind of a riotous living, living as an unbeliever and obviously trying to satisfy this appetite and that appetite and finally ran foul of, of the law. And while he was running and doing this sin and that sin, there were many who were with him. And then, of course, he's arrested and now he's in need and he found himself alone. Now he had no family and they weren't interested in him. He had deserted them and forgotten them and those who once did things with him were off on their own and here he is all alone until something happened, beloved. He heard gospel preaching and he found Christ, by which I mean, of course, really Christ found him and dealt with him in his sin and the consequence of his foolishness and his sin and opened his eyes to himself and why he was there in prison and paying for his crime. And as he found Christ, he found a friend as Christ found him. And then surprisingly, he came across others in the prison who were also making a confession of of faith, having heard preaching, many of them, some of them in correspondence even with the Redlands Committee. And now, as they had the commonality of faith, he had friends. As he came to his senses and realized the foolishness of sin, made confession, suddenly there were true friends. That's a striking thing, beloved, you know, where true friendship is found, not in the ways of sin but in the ways of faith and in the ways of 
repentance and the ways of resolution unto godliness. And so this prodigal is laid out in the parable because as you read the passage, Christ describes him as saying that he would have feigned his, to fill his belly with hus and no man gave to him and he began to be in want. He was all, all alone. No one was really interested in where he was at or his well-being. You have nothing to give us and we have no interest in you unless there is something, some use you are to us. You're of no use to us so why should we give anything to you? And yet, beloved, he wasn't completely forgotten, was he? He wasn't really completely alone, whether he knew it or not. He had a father, didn't he? And even though he was living prodigiously in sin and foolishness, his father hadn't forgotten him. As we read in the parable as for this father, he actually would see him a great way off because he kept looking down the road. His heart was still towards that, that son of his. He hadn't forgotten. He still loved that son. That son did not know his friendship. That son did not have his approval. But that father still loved this prodigal son. And of course, that father of the parable represents God. And it's exactly the love of the father, one's father as God, that brings one to himself, isn't it? Now that can't spell that on the parable, of course, because this father is simply a human father. And however much a human father may love his children, we ourselves by our love can't save our children. And by our love, certainly, we can't change their minds so that they know repentance and so on. And our love can often be frustrated. We want the well-being and they want one to listen and he goes his own willful way anyway in spite of our love. We know that as parents. Sometimes they can be frustrated. Not God's love. Not the love of the Heavenly Father, whom he loves, beloved, he draws. He has his own way of drawing his own. He does that internally, of course, in time, but he may do that by external means as well to bring one to his senses. Sometimes he's going to have to go his own way till he hits rock bottom, and then maybe he'll come to his senses when he sees the foolishness of the way he has chosen and when he has lost and divested himself of. Perhaps God will use that to bring him to his senses. Well, God did use something to bring this man to his senses. The famine. The famine is God's famine, isn't it? It's not by the father of the parable, but that father of the parable represents God who loves his own and knows how to bring his own to himself in by various ways and means. And sometimes it's not only by the call of the gospel, but we have and they haven't heard the call, they will not hear the call of the gospel, and then they and we learn the folly of our sin and the end of that sin and its consequences, and one is brought to one's senses. And so the famine came upon 
the land. And this man is completely empty, you see. And what he realizes is that in the end, all that he sought has not satisfied himself. The deceitfulness of sin, beloved. In the end, it does not completely, ultimately satisfy. It may for a little while, and then one needs more and more and more because it's not what answers to the need of a man to live apart from God is death. Even for the unbeliever, there is something lacking because of how a man is made. And once God is out of life and there is no God in the heart, one lacks. And whatever may pursue will not in the end satisfy something else something else, something else. And so beloved with this man, he had to learn something basic about sin, something that the publicans and sinners had to learn, and something that through 6,000 years of history mankind has refused to learn. That sin in the end doesn't satisfy. You may pursue it, you may have an appetite for it, you may feed on it, but you're going to consume it and you're still going to be empty. Something is lacking. As the, as the church father Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. And so the Lord God uses this famine, you see, to bring this young man to his senses. And as he's brought to his senses, he, of course, learns the way of repentance. We read, he came to himself. Now, there's an inner work here. There's an inner work of the Spirit. Christ doesn't say that, but in reality, of course, when one comes to himself, he understands something. He comes to a knowledge of himself that's brought by this inner work. He sees his own pride. He sees his own rebellion. He sees his own base in gratitude that he himself has made the choice to squander and to, and to waste. And he remembers his father's house and his father's friendship. And he learns the way of repentance. And in repentance, he turns to his father's house to make confession. It's a matter of repentance, and let's just briefly, beloved, touch on a few elements of repentance. What constitutes true repentance? Well, what constitutes true repentance, first of all, is conviction, conviction of sin, the acknowledgement that I have sinned. I have committed something that is wrong, that is really in its own way damn worthy, and it's my responsibility. I am Accountable. I can't simply shift the blame to someone else. This young man does not. He says, I have sinned against heaven and before the interest. You know, it's a parable, so he talks about sinning against his father, but Christ even has him bring heaven into it. It's not simply I've sinned against my earthly father. I've sinned against God. Conviction, you see, that kind of sin. It's not simply uh, a matter of some remorse. I done the wrong thing, and it's not having a good benefit in myself, I better change my, my life. It's a confession of 
sin that makes one worthy of condemnation, and it is against God himself. And so, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And joined with that, of course, is this humility, because he says, I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. And if I were to come to the Father and he would say, you have sinned, and now you're simply going to be numbered with the servants, the son would have said, that's more than I deserve. I don't even deserve to be called thy son, Lord, have mercy, my father, and I will simply be one of thy servants. You see, this humility, but joined with this humility that I have sinned against God, there is this turning. Don't forget, part of repentance is the resolution to turn. That's going to be found in the form, as we will read it next Sunday morning, when it speaks of three parts of self-examination, And then it says, let everyone thirdly examine his own conscience, whether he purposeth henceforth to show true thankfulness to God. The first is, consider himself his sins and the curse. That's conviction of sin. What I have done, I'm accountable. I am unworthy of the Father's love. I'm worthy of condemnation. Be merciful to me. But also in the third part, true thankfulness, notice, and to walk uprightly, whether he hath laid aside unfeignedly all enmity, hatred, and envy. And I will lay these things behind. I will be done with these. Repentance has to do with the resolution, beloved, to forsake sin, not to continue in the way. I want my sin forgiven. I want it to be removed, the, the guilt and what follows, but I'm going to pursue it anyway. No, it's not repentance. Mature repentance, one realizes what I'm experiencing in guilt and consequences is the folly of what I have chosen, I resolve by the grace of God to leave this way, to put it aside and pray for the grace to be able to continue to withstand that temptation and that sin. So it is a turning from, and is a resolution to forsake. Beloved, there's one more element. It's not only a turning from, it's a turning unto someone, isn't it? And true repentance, one is turning to God in love and to know his love. It's not simply, you know, I'm turning from my sin to escape judgment. And if I continue in this way, there's consequences for myself, and I don't want to be judged. I don't want to end up in hell. So in the interest of not ending up in hell, I guess I better give up these these ways that displease God. Now, one departs because they displease God, but one doesn't depart simply as kind of a hell insurance policy. One departs from sin, if it's true repentance, because... I desire to know the embrace of God. It has to do with a desire for God himself and to hear God speak to one as a father and say, thy sins be forgiven thee. I count thee still as my son. That's found in the way of repentance, isn't it? Not apart from repentance, not apart from turning from sin, but in the way of repentance and turning towards God, that in turning towards God as one confesses one's unworthiness to be embraced by God, to hear God say, thou art still my son. 
On what is that, is, on what is that based? On the repentance? No, it's not based on the repentance. Now the parable doesn't say this explicitly. You don't hear repentance and the father saying, on the basis of Christ's blood, I receive you. But don't forget this is Jesus talking. And he's talking to Jews. And he's calling them to repentance. And they know that the way of repentance involves sacrifice and bringing a sacrifice to the temple back then in the New Testament age as it's applied to the New Testament age it'll be implied bringing the sacrifice of the blood of Christ but always with a repentant heart with a contrition with a sorrow and casting oneself you see upon the mercy of God and here's the hope and wonder of the parable what Christ assures the publican and sinner of and the prodigal is that God is such a God that when one comes to him in the name of his own son in the way of repentance and confession with sorrow and casts oneself upon his mercy God welcomes one God receives one God embraces one and says, the table of my home is your table. Let us sit down and eat together, shall we? And I will feed you once again from my own hand. Beloved, as you anticipate, isn't that re reason for joy? Isn't that desirable? But in the way of repentance and confession and acknowledgement and casting oneself simply on the mercy of God and being embraced. And beloved, that satisfies. Amen. For thy word we give thee thanks, for the gospel as spoken by our Lord Jesus, apply it to our hearts, and we who can identify with the prodigal, and Lord, sometimes even with the elder brother, if we become judgmental, forgive our iniquities, our sins, humble us before thee, and teach us the way of repentance, and the way of casting ourselves upon mercy, and also love one for another as thou hast so loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>